0: This is the sermon podcast for Bering Memorial United Methodist Church, a reconciling congregation located deep in the heart of Houston, Texas. For more information, please go to BeringUMC.org. So this month is Black History Month, and I was... Reminded of my father, who I would call a contemplative activist. He worked in the South, in Georgia, in the early 60s, trying to address the racial injustice that he saw, and had the privilege of marching with Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. Those were difficult days. In some ways, we continue to have difficult days. There's still a lot of work to be done My father was also a trained clinical psychologist and chaplain who spent his entire professional career working with those who were severely mentally ill. And in those days we institutionalized folks who had that level of mental illness and he was the head chaplain of the largest state-run facility in the United States in Milledgeville, Georgia at the time. Much of the injustice that my father stood against and the communities that he stood with, he couldn't fix. Most of the people that he spent his life caring for had mental illness that he couldn't take away. He couldn't fix that for them. And yet somehow my father had the sense of who he was and who God was to stay centered and be able to continue to stand for justice to work for it, to walk alongside those who were suffering injustice, to care for those who he could never make well without growing weary, without fainting, without giving up in frustration because the results he longed for, he didn't see. I was reminded as I listened to the choir sing the anthem, The Storm is Passing Over?, that song was sung in the midst of a storm, that it was hard to see whether there would any be any light where the storm would ever pass, and yet it's, it's a song of faith that the storm is indeed passing over from a place of confidence in the God who is at work even in the midst of the storm. Now, unlike my father, I'm a fixer. That's what I do. It's my call in life. I became a lawyer so I could fix the injustice that I saw around me. I became a pastor because I wanted the church to get engaged and fix the injustice that I saw and see around me and that I believe the church is to be engaged in. When I left the cabinet to come here, they had a a uh, going-away party, uh, where, and Part of their present to me was something that Morris Math had made. It was a uh, Diane's challenge meter. It had every challenge you could imagine on it because what they knew about me is I never met a problem that I didn't feel like I had to fix. But what do you do when you can't fix it? What do you do when the suffering around you doesn't change? We can't make an illness go away. When someone we love is hurting, and everything we try doesn't change it. When the injustice in our community, we feel like we're hitting our heads against the wall and it doesn't budge in our church. How do we stand in a place of hope? How do we rise up with wings of eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint? That's our question for this morning. That was the question that Isaiah's community was wrestling with. And I believe there's an answer. So let's pray and ask God to meet us here. Gracious God, you are a God of justice, a God of love. You are a God who is at work healing, redeeming the whole world Remind us who you are. Remind us when our hearts grow faint that we are not alone. That you have already won the victory and you call us to stand in that confidence. Now take the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. May they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So in the early 80s, I was at Princeton Seminary, and I was working in Trenton, New Jersey, in the inner city, trying to help three churches that were in the same neighborhood, a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, and an Episcopalian church. Now, in these communities, there were beautiful churches that on Sunday had beautiful worship services, but the community that had originally built those churches had left the city. They had moved out into the suburbs in what was called White Flight. They would drive in on Sunday mornings, have a beautiful kumbaya worship service, and it was beautiful, and they'd go home. But the neighborhood in which the churches were now located was suffering. There was abject poverty. There was drug addiction, violence, gangs, parents who were working two jobs and still couldn't make ends meet and couldn't be home when their kids got out of school. We call them latchkey kids. And the wonderful people in those churches didn't have a clue what was going in the neighborhood. They weren't there. And those who did didn't have a clue what to do, including me. I didn't have a clue what to do. And so I marched into Suzanne Rudisell's office one afternoon. She was the academic dean at Princeton Seminary. And I said, i got to have some tools. We're not doing anything. All this wonderful theology that I'm learning is great, but it's not helping this neighborhood. Our churches aren't making any difference, and I don't have anything that helps. I'm going to go to law school. Give me leave after my second year. Let me go to law school. Let me see if I can find something that actually could help, and I'll come back my third year, and we'll figure out how to actually engage in a neighborhood in a way that makes a difference. She was all on board. I got into law school. They gave me the leave, And off I went. Now, circumstances were such that I didn't get to go back to seminary after that. Instead, I found myself in Houston, the single mom of four boys, and I practiced law. And I was a good lawyer. I fixed a lot of things, but there were a lot of things I couldn't fix. There was a lot of injustice that I couldn't do anything about, and it kept me up at night. It drove me crazy. I felt incompetent, inadequate. There had to be something that I could do. This just wasn't right. Fast forward a number of years. I've practiced law for 20 years. I'm now back in seminary. I'm going to help the church fix it. I'm working with Greg Jones. up at Duke Divinity School. We're starting the Center for Reconciliation. We're going to train Young pastors and how to address the violence that is present in Christian communities such as ours and in places such as Rwanda and Uganda. Something is missing in our theology that allows a violent narrative to take over in communities like our own that call themselves Christian. I had just come from taking a whole group of Duke Divinity students to Rwanda and Uganda. Jack was with me, and what we saw was devastating. Communities that over 90% of the population claimed to be Christian had killed one another, had killed members of their own families, their own tribes, in this devastating genocide. And it was horrific to witness the aftermath Jack and I came back and started together in hope, trying to do something. But the burden was overwhelming. I have a very close friend and mentor who is an uh, gory Hindu monk. He has an ashram up in Northern Carol- California. While I was in Rwanda, I had met a widow of the genocide who had lost her whole family, and she made a living now making crucifixes by taking long, thin, thin green limbs from trees soaking them in water and then weaving them in a single piece into a cross they were absolutely beautiful and I had gotten Hari Baba G, one of those and so Jack and I made our way up to see him and he and I sat cross from each other lotus style can't do that anymore and I just poured out my pain to him he sat and listened to me as he does and after a moment he said Diane Why are you doing this to yourself? And I said, what? He said, carrying this horrible burden, this need to fix all of this, it's killing you. And I began to weep. And I said, because people are hurting. I have to do something. He listened. He let me weep. And then in the way that only he could do, he looked at me and said, Diane, aren't you a Christian? I said, yes. Why? And he said, well, I thought as a Christian, you told me that Jesus had saved the world. And I said, he did. And then he looked at me with all the kindness he could muster and said, then how come you're trying to take his place? Is your God not big enough? Is your God not compassionate enough? And the weight fell off when I remembered who God was and who I was. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we do not need to be about the business of addressing injustice, that we do not need to be about the business of taking care of those who need to be cared for, whatever the reason may be, whether it's disease whether it's a breakup in a family, whether it's a church that says you're not welcome because there's something wrong with you, whatever it is, we need to be about that. John Wesley's probably said it better than anyone. Do all the good you can, in all the ways you can, by all the means you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, at all the times you can, as long as ever you can. We are called to do that. But if we try to do that in our own strength, We will fall under the burden. We will burn out and we will faint. We can only do that if we do it in the strength of the God who alone can save us. Who is our wisdom. Who can allow us, can cause us, empower us to rise up with wings of eagles. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. And we do that by waiting on the Lord. How do we do that? <laughs> How do we wait on the Lord while we work for change? That was the question that Isaiah's community was facing. Our text for this morning is, called, is actually the start of what's called 2nd Isaiah, and it's written to the community that's in exile in Babylon. The children of Israel had been literally taken from their homeland as slaves, The temple lay devastated. They were scattered, and now they were refugees in a foreign land, refugees from the land that God had promised them. They're devastated. They can't see any hope. They are in pain. They sit by the rivers of Babylon, and they weep, and their tormentors, their captors require of them songs. And their response is, how can we sing the Lord's song? In a foreign land. It's as if their voice is stuck in their throat and they cannot sing the songs of Zion. They are so convinced by their circumstances that their way is hidden from the Lord, they are fainting. And Isaiah points this devastated community to the God who is all powerful. The God who cannot be contained in any box we try to put God in. Who is more powerful than anything we can imagine. This God who is the God above all gods. But who is also as close as our own breath. This God who is intimately at work healing the whole world. And Isaiah reminds them that the God who sits above the circle of the earth, who brings the rulers and nations to naught and throws them into confusion is the same God who has promised that a bruised reed she will not break, that her servant will not fail until justice is spread throughout the whole world and all of creation that this one who is greater than we can possibly imagine is the same God who feeds her flock like a shepherd and gathers the lambs gently in her arms, who takes us by the hand and leads us out of the darkness into the light. How do we do that? How do we stand in that place? Isaiah tells us and the first thing Isaiah does is calls his community to remember. We must remember who God is and who we are. That this God who is our God will never leave us or forsake us. That nothing can separate us or the ones we love from this God who alone can save us. That there's nothing we can do there's no place we can go, whether we go there by our own volition and choices or because someone has driven us there by the way they've treated us or some disease that's got hold of us. There's no place we can go that this God is not with us and who is at work to heal all of it. Isaiah calls his community, remember, have you not heard Have you not seen, were you not taught this from the foundation of the earth? Remember. Now I have to confess to you that I've stood up here and I've told you my story, how God redeemed my life from the pit. Time and time again. And how I deeply believe that we are called to be instruments of God's peace in helping others climb out of the pits in which they find themselves. But I have to tell you, When it gets close, when it's someone I love dearly, when it's a community that I care for and I can't fix it, I develop amnesia. I forget. And God calls me to remember who this God is, that the same God who delivered my life from the pit is going to deliver this one that I care for. Sometimes I can do that on my own. Sometimes if I just draw aside and get still with God, I can remember. But most of the times, I can't do it by myself. I need you. You need me. I need someone to remember for me, to stand in the gap and hold the promise and claim it when I can't claim it for myself. We're called to remember this God who is for us and will never leave us or the ones we love. So we remember. The second thing we do is we draw nigh to God consistently, day in and day out. We cannot do this in our own strength. We need to get to know this God by listening in prayer. By studying the scriptures, eating it, as the prophets say, so that it becomes part of our fiber of our being. And so it's there when we need it. Daniel was one of the exiles. And scripture tells us that in exile, in captivity, three times a day, he would open his window towards Jerusalem and pray. And so when the tests came, Daniel was ready. He knew where to find what he needed. Jesus in our text today is out, there's so much need, and yet he finds the time, even when he's being hunted, to go be apart and listen to God. So when the test comes, and it comes with such severity that he sweats drops of blood, when it comes, he's ready. Hannah prays for years in the temple until the answer comes. Anna spends her whole life in the temple waiting for the vision, until it's realized. We have to practice. We have to be disciplined day in and day out, drawing nigh to God, so that we have what we need when the time comes. Now, some of you know my husband Jack is a pilot. He learned to fly so that he could go to the small towns where a lot of his clients are and get there easily. And he loves it. And He is anal retentive, and that's a good thing in a pilot. (laughs) It's a good thing in a pilot, and he practices. Even though he got his training and his license, he practices every month, and several times a year he goes and he does emergency simulations, Two years ago, we had gone up, taken a long weekend to go see the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay, just something we wanted to do. The weather was pretty good, and there was a, a Sunday game there, and then there was a Monday night game with the Texans in Cincinnati, so we stopped there. And the next day on our way home, there was a squall line that ran all the way down the United States from north to south. It was so high that even the commercial airlines couldn't get through it, and so everything was waiting. We got to Mississippi and had to sit and wait. Wait. And then finally, air traffic and Carl said, There's an opening. You can go through it. They sent us first. Thank you very much. (laughs) We got in it and then it closed in on us. I don't know if I've ever been so terrified. It was the most frightening thing. I'm in a headset and so is Jack. We can hear each other. I had to take my headset off because I'm over there going, Oh God, help us! And and I meant it, too, and I didn't want Jack to hear me because he's over there trying to fly the plane. But here's what happened. Jack had practiced it so many times that even when he lost control of the plane and air traffic had no clue what to do, he knew exactly what was required and just did it. It seemed like an eternity before we were out. It was probably only a few minutes. But you see, he had practiced it. He was disciplined. And when the test came, he knew what to do and where to go to get what he needed. And that's what we've got to do. It seems like a waste of time. We don't hear from God. I'm reading scripture or so what. But we're building within us spiritual muscles so when the test comes... We know what to do, and we can stand not only for ourselves, but for others, even when it looks like the standing doesn't matter. And then finally, we do it as community. There's a reason we don't do private baptisms, because we're inviting this child in the community, and we are making a commitment that we're going to stand with her, with him. And when they can't stand for themselves, we'll stand for them. We're not going anywhere. When I was here in Houston by myself with no family, absolutely broken, carrying the shame of not being able to sustain a second marriage and wondering how I was going to take care of four kids and work full time, I walked into Bel Air United Methodist Church with nothing to offer. And they did this. They invited us into their homes. They took us on vacations with them. They included us. As part of the family, they stood for us. I didn't have to be or do anything. I could just hurt if I wanted to. And then when we had healed enough, they made room for my gifts. They taught me how to stand and how to stand with. I know you know how to do that because I see you do it. When I sit up here, I see things that maybe the rest of you don't. A couple of Sundays ago, we have, I know where you all sit. So I know when you're not here. It's just funny to kind of watch all that. But we have three amigos that sit over here, and that's Larry and David and John. And sometimes one of them's not there. And so two Sundays ago, David wasn't there, but John and Larry were. And I'm watching, and the service has started. And Shelby walks in from the back. And I knew that Shelby and Amanda had opened their hearts and their homes to these two foster children. And they had immediately become their own they loved them as their own. They thought they were their forever children. But the court found an extended family member of their biological mother, and as courts will do, if there's a family member that's a good place, they will place the foster children eventually there. And although Amanda and Shelby wanted what's best for those children, and they knew this was a good thing, it broke their hearts. And they were grieving and I saw Shelby come in by herself, and I knew she was hurting. And I couldn't do anything from up here. And I think I must have turned to listen to the choir, but when I turned around, Larry and John had somehow gotten Shelby from behind them, in between them, and were holding her and allowing her to be in pain and knowing that she was loved. And the other miraculous thing about that was she let them <laughs> She allowed herself to be vulnerable, allowed them to meet a need that she had. That's what it looks like to be a community that says, We're here for you, and we're not going anywhere, and it doesn't matter whether you got it together this morning or not, because there'll be a time when I don't, and I need you to stand for me. How do we wait on the Lord and not grow faint? How do we keep walking toward hope, toward the justice that we all long for? We remember who God is. We draw nigh to God on a disciplined, consistent basis. And we live deeply into community. They who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, they will mount up with wings of eagles, they will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. In the name of the creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.